Welcome back to Managing Marketing, and today I'm talking with Mark Renke, Group Executive Customer Data and Marketing at Suncorp, and uh, actually a long-term friend. So welcome, Mark. Thanks, Darren. Good to see you. Now, uh, it says here, uh, Customer Data and Marketing. Um, I guess where I'd like to start this conversation is how for you is the balance change between customer data and marketing in, say, the last three years? It's a good question, Darren. I think um, I think all marketers would say they've been customer centric. Mm. Uh, I would certainly, you know, argue my marketing career has always been centred around the customer. Uh, but I think what's changed and changed substantially is um, we have unquestionably transformed and transitioned really quickly from that being an uh, an engagement with customers in a communication mm. context to yeah. an engagement. Uh, at an experience level. And that's a big difference, isn't it? Because, you know, traditional marketing, the, the of the four Ps, promotion was the main way we interacted with customer, wasn't it? Well, I think this is, in, in some ways, I could argue it's, it's um, the principles are still the same. Mm-hmm. So if you went back to the basics of four Ps, yeah. um, really what you're doing here is joining those back up and, yeah. and perhaps over time they've become a little bit unjoined and and a lot of marketers, arguably most marketers, particularly in my business, which is a services business, you know, it's an intangible yeah. product, um, in reality you're orchestrating an experience and that experience is combined of part price, part product, part the distribution experience and and part the way it's presented. Yeah. And, and I think what's different now is um, people consumers, customers, um, their expectations are set outside of your category. Yes. So financial services, many would say, you know, is, is um, you know, has a level of expectation that's lower, you could say, than, than some perhaps retail categories or e-tailer categories uh, in the past. But I find that's now changed. I just simply do not accept as a customer <laughs> that yeah. I can get great service and, and beautifully tailored, personalised experiences from my local coffee shop yeah. So and why not get can't... them from my bank or insurance business. Only and, reason. And and yeah, not only that, they've been empowered now through social media. Like you know, customers could always walk away, couldn't they? If they didn't like the service you're giving, them, sure, they could walk away. But now they're empowered because they've almost become uh, you know, publishers in their own right through social media. You know, they're not just happy to tell their neighbours and complain about poor service. They will tell everyone that listens and everyone on the internet. So that makes it a much more powerful voice from them. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Darren. I think in reality, um, this is a globalised phenomena. Mm. Um, I mean, this transcends boundaries of brands, tr- transcends state uh, nation states yes. in a way, so behaviour is fairly ubiquitous now. I mean, in our business, we have this sort of saying that you know customers know more, expect more, and have more power. And you know, if we don't sort of reorientate in that world, then in reality, um, we will cease to be relevant. And it's interesting um, your point about the expectations set outside of your category because there was a time when we would say, oh, well, you know, all banks are the same or all telcos are the same or all whatever are the same. So, you know, we just put up with it. Airlines are the same. Mm. But I think uh, you're right, you know, that overall people are no longer seeing that boundaries in their expectations. No, no, not at all. And I think most businesses, certainly mine, now see 
that tomorrow's competitors, arguably even today's, are not coming from within your category. So because consumers have now um, voted with their own uh, behaviour, um, you will see uh, categories um, change uh, based on competitors that bring business models that are really effective in, in um, technology, in retail, and bring those to financial services, and we see that today. Yeah. So they design, they design and orchestrate those experiences as if you were a, a technology-enabled retailer, yes. not a bank. And what's interesting is you don't have to have the big infrastructure of a bank hold the capital, take the risk. You can plug into a bank to do that. So increasingly, what I would say for my business is we do not want to become the utility into which someone else plugs and delivers those experiences. We want to be the orchestrator of those experiences. And that's where customer, I think, takes on a new meaning beyond just the person that buys the product at the end of the day. Yeah, because you know, being reduced to simply a service provider and no longer having that customer interface actually completely takes you out of the market and makes you a commodity, doesn't it? Dead right. Dead right. And I think too, Darren, now what we're seeing is um, we, we, we certainly in financial services for the last 200 years, this has been a value chain model that over time things have aggregated together and have been provided by one bank, one insurance company, one brand. And what you can see now, technology is allowing um, new startups and smaller businesses um, to compete on a level playing field with a 200-year-old business that's capitalised at $100 billion. Mm. And what they're doing is debundling that value chain. Pretty much, in other words, saying, I can provide a really um, uh, simple and personalised service to you at the front, Darren, but I don't have to do all of that stuff at the back. Yes, I can have someone else do that. The business models of yesterday would have said, you, oh, no, you, you, you can't do one without the other. So what I think is great about this is it, it pushes people like me and, and peers uh, like myself to think about your business in a different way and get serious about customer in a way that is in non-superficial level, i.e. It needs, it needs to change your business model over time if you're serious. Because the thing about this whole transformation is that the, for those very large capitalised businesses you know, and, and high-risk businesses, the fear of having to transform the business model is often what stops them moving forward. You know, you, you've got such a large investment in infrastructure that to actually rethink that is a major risk, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the hardest thing any company can do, and there are many case studies of where it couldn't be done, is to disrupt yourself. Hmm. I mean, Nokia um, is a great example um, you know, brilliant technology, outstanding marketing, outstanding customer experience, could see the future, had the right partners, couldn't press the button when it really counted, in, in, in to fact, re, to, to, to reorientate yeah. that. So I had all of the ingredients. So I think having the ingredients is one thing, um, having the ability and courage um, and the narrative in a way for the market. So if you're a publicly listed business, to be able to talk to your shareholders in a way that says, I can see that you need to reorientate this business and what I've bought into is still valuable. Mm. And I think what's very difficult for large and listed companies to do is to, to tell that story of an emerging or, or transforming business model in a way that's comfortable for investors. And, and I think you know, that's a challenge for people like me to do a much better job of. And that's why we've seen the disruption in traditional categories that have been led by companies that have embraced 
the starting point of being the customer experience and use technology. You know, again, I was at a, a presentation last week where someone used that slide of the world's largest taxi company has no taxis yeah. and the, <laughs> the largest retailer has no stores and the you know and all of that. But it's the model. The consistent thing is that they've been able to rethink from a technology point of view the customer experience and then done the infrastructure from behind the scenes. Dead right. I mean, what, what we've learnt, and I think the, the Airbnb, Uber models and, and many that, that will come, uh, they all have one thing in common. They're all platform plays. Mm. And platforms to me are is, is sort of a, just a code for uh, being able to connect up things that were never connected Before, and to be able yeah. to scale up mm. incredibly quickly and, and at, at relatively low cost. And, and what's changed that is cloud. Cloud and compute power... Um, which may and probably exposed APIs, APIs that allow me to be able to plug other businesses in so I can provide a suite of services. But, but that's right. I mean, you know, they haven't had the infrastructure to worry about protecting it. You know, in some ways, we're so, your business gets to a size where you're so focused on protecting what you have that you put yourself at risk because technology has completely reshaped the way we think about the way we do business. I, I agree. I think, Darren, it's like being playing cricket and yeah. you're a batsman and you're on 99 and you think, I just don't want to get out. I just don't want to get out. And what happens? <laughs> you go out because you're playing conservatively you, you, rather than you, you, playing you're playing, win. playing to protect. Yeah. And and that's a, you know, that's a real challenge and it's, it's not easy to overcome because I think often you don't think you're doing that. It's easy in the wisdom of 2020 hindsight. I think most businesses... Uh, believe they are making the right decisions, but um, you do need provocation. You need external provocation to continue to push. You need great boards that are open and pushing as well to, to continue to reinvent. And, you know, I'm lucky I've got both of those. Mm. So to back, Mark, to the something you said earlier, which is in some ways this whole transition, this disruption that's happening, has got people to rethink marketing, to embrace or string together mm. all of the original principles of marketing is really interesting. Mm. Because you know, while technology is disrupting all parts of business, from my perspective, and perhaps it's, and, and you are both in marketing, it has had a fundamental impact on marketing, hasn't it? It's completely changing the way we think about marketing principles or the way they're implemented. The way they're delivered. Yeah. I think, I, I suspect, Darren, I mean, we could argue it, but I think the, the principles remain the same, um, but the way that you can deliver this at scale, at speed, and, and in a, such a personalised way, mm. um, I think that's revolutionary. I mean, I think we always would have would have had aspiration to do that and perhaps done it in pockets, but... Um, it's simply not possible to do at scale and at speed, mm. and, and it is now. And it feels, if done well, it feels incredibly empowering for customers um, to be in control, to have things that um, reflect their needs, their behaviours. Um, that's pretty, pretty exciting stuff for consumers. But it does transcend silos in businesses, and that's really tricky. Yeah. Um, the enemy of of speed and simplicity and personalization is complexity. And and as businesses are more successful, of course they add more complexity. Yeah. And complexity is the enemy to delivering that. So you have this sort of tension between doing really well and then finding that you've created exactly what you didn't want for your customer, which is 
too many too many touch points that are doing things in a, um, too many different ways. And that is, you know, uh, the number of CEOs that have talked about we need to be customer centric or we need to be customer focused or, you know, that they're putting customer at the front of the business um, have inherited legacy models that are full of silos. I know, you know, my own personal experience of banking over the years is that whether I'm seen as a business customer or a personal customer or a credit card customer because there is no way for the silos to be able to see yeah. me as one person. Yes. It's almost like I turn up each day and I'm yeah. a different yes, person. That's you know? right. And and the frustrate you know, while you can understand the silos, the fact is that those silos actually are a two thousand year old structure which came from the Romans. Yep. The Romans put armies into silos because it was a much more effective way of fighting than just a whole rabble of people bashing the hell out of each other. And that became the way that uh, the British embraced that. And then during the Industrial Revolution, they formalised that, that format. Um, and then along in the 20th century, we suddenly got marketing and marketing itself embraced this war attitude because we have target audiences campaigns. that we're going to demand, now <laughs> campaigns, right. you know, and we're going to hit our targets. And, uh, you know, but now in the 21st century, because of technology and the ability of technology to deal with large amounts of data mm. and create huge amount of connectedness, mm. isn't it time that we actually go deeper and rethink the whole purpose of the structure of business and the way it's done? Mm. Well, that's a big question, Darren. That's I know. <laughs> but I think because of marketing being so impacted mm. and marketing being at the forefront mm. of any business, mm. you know, sales and marketing and all aspects mm. of that, is at the forefront of the customer. So can we actually get to the point of having a customer experience if we're not putting the whole aligning the business sure. to the customer rather than having these structures which work very well. Sure. If you're a Roman uh, legion or a um, industrial uh, manufacturer. Well, look, I think that that's entirely um, a good synopsis of, of 2,000 years. Um, and I think my business, Suncorp, would be um, a great example of that. And one of the reasons you'll see data in my title is that... Um, we, like most businesses, um, broke our customer down and put them in 13 different warehouses, effectively. Mm -hmm. So the ability to tr Six truly months. understand, well, we, we put some in a distribution warehouse, some in a product okay. warehouse, some yeah. in a risk, some in a pricing. Yeah. In reality, they're pieces of a person and mm. that person's behaviour. So, you know, we are and, and I am working um, to put that back together. And there's only one fundamental premise underneath all of that, that connecting stuff adds value. Connecting data, connecting experiences. I mean, the Apple model, I would argue, is based entirely on the power of connection. Um, never, never create a solution or a service for customers that doesn't work with an existing service that you have. So things have to work together. Now, that, can't, that cannot happen in any business, certainly can't happen in mine, if if our information is disparate. Of course. And that's where technology is, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment around customised, customised experiences 
and personalised experience. Mm -hmm. And the two are different. Mm -hmm. I mean, customised is really just modifying the experience to suit a segment of people. Mm -hmm. Mass customisation. Mass customisation. Whereas personalised is actually getting down to the Mm one-on-one. And it's interesting because people talk about that, but actually Lester Wonderman, and and I'm sure you've read Mm -hmm. his work, you know, this is from the 50s and 60s, actually was able to map out a customer experience. But Lester's technology in that in those days was having a room full of typists yeah, that would type out personalised letters. Yeah. They actually had to type out the whole letter to mail it off, and when the person responded to it, they had the next letter that they'd send off and so on and so forth. In today's technology age, we can actually mimic exactly what he wrote 30, 40 years ago, more, but do it in real time. But that's why I think the, the, the principles, and Lester was a great example, you know, it's quite prophetic in a way. I mean, it's just that we're catching up now on our ability to do it at scale. Mm-hmm. You can do this in small businesses, um, but rarely, if ever, in, in large. And it's a pretty exciting time, I would argue, to be, in inverted commas, a marketer, uh, 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 mm-hmm. uh, anyone who's got responsibility for creating experience that are... That, that are truly personalised at scale. I mean, that stuff is easy to talk about, but not so easy to do. So technology is the enabler, but um, you've still got to work out how, or you've still got to work out what problem to solve for customers hmm. because there are a hundred problems and only you know a handful are really going to make a difference for customers. And you've got to work out how to design that. And that's what's, I think, also very exciting in, in what I see in the industry at the moment, Darren, where that user experience, that sort of, CX type skill set is is so um, in demand, so valuable because you can have again all of the ingredients, but still there's I think there's still a part art mm. to putting together the science. Well, because we're human beings, you know. The thing is, and this is the reason I love behavioural economics, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah, you know, if numbers worked, if we could actually understand human beings through numbers, through data alone then you know, you're assuming that human beings are rational. Mm. Now, it's been proven that classical economics, which was based on us being rational beings, supply and demand, you know, all of those, uh, those theories were actually based on rational human mm-hmm. beings. The fact is that we're totally irrational. Mm. The only saving grace for business is that we're predictable in our irrationality. Totally right. So it still requires, um, and and the only caveat I'd put there is um, artificial intelligence will be able to learn at some point when it when it gets to the right stage of development. We'll be able to learn our rationality, but I think you know until then it still requires that human input, which is where marketers come to the fore. You know, marketing for me has for too many years been the support for business. Mm, yeah. I think, and, and, you know, we can talk about whether it's marketing or customer, mm. but, you know, um, marketing has the role or the opportunity to really be at the forefront. You know, the def- my definition of marketing is the face that the business shows to the market. Mm-hmm. That's marketing. Mm. Well, my definition, Darren, would be similar, but I would use, you know, I only use two words, and, and that is to sense and respond. Right. And, and that can run on a, lump, a number of levels. Um, to, for the company to sense um, its, whether its model is relevant mm-hmm. and if it's not to respond. To sense uh, customer needs and to be able to respond to those in real time. To, to sense customer behaviour and to be able to change 
that experience in real time. So I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, but as you said, and I think you're absolutely right, um, what was true for Lester Wonderman and David Ogilvy and all of those guys was the part art, part science. Mm. It's just now that I think you can have a really um, a powerful combination of those in a way that's transformational. And you, and you mentioned behavioural economics. I think um, in my business, we, you know, we've, got a, we've got to create experiences that build trust, empathy, mm. um, gamification, um, and deal with, to your point, cognitive bias that people have mm. and and that is behavioral economics so social science meets data science is yeah. still uh, you know my belief of where this is going and that's i think it's just exciting and then marketers can be at the pointy end of that and in doing that i think you end up with a business that's resilient rather than one that's good today but runs runs out of ideas or runs out of relevance tomorrow so picking up on your relevance, you know, and, and sensing whether a business is relevant, where do you think the rise of the conversation about the purpose of a business comes in? You know, because a lot of companies are now trying to find or not find because purpose exists mm. within every organisation. It exists because it has a purpose, mm. right? If there was no purpose, then why, you know, why does it even continue? But, uh, you know, this idea of finding and articulating purpose, because there are lots and lots of different companies in the same category and they've got no way of even being distinctive other than the colour that they're painted or mm. the words that are mm. stuck on there. What, where do you think purpose fits into that conversation? Well, I think to your point, Darren, I think we would all argue purpose has been um, central to our brands, central to our businesses, but I, I think probably time would judge us fairly harshly there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, that purpose probably, while noble, has been still skewed to um, things that are important to us, uh, perhaps important to our shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you go back to the Simon Sinek why, I think... Almost all of the big companies I talk to, and small, um, they they're pretty pretty engaged around this in a non superficial way. And the best example I saw was a couple of months ago. We took our executive team, like a lot of executive teams, to Silicon Valley, yep. um, and we spoke to a whole range of startups. Now, if you're a startup there, um, very hard to get great talent. And Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or anyone else can just pick your staff and pay them two and three more uh, times what you're paying them. And, and, and when we asked what kept their staff there, it, they all said the same thing completely independently and it was purpose. Mm. Having, having a, a meaning mm. uh, beyond making money, uh, they, they are very clear on their purpose um, in a community sense, in a shared value sense. Mm. Um, my new boss, our new CEO, um, on his first day here said, we are going to change our language from uh, delivering value from our customers to delivering value for our customers. Yeah. Uh, language matters. Absolutely. And purpose and getting that right, for, particularly in a service business, for people to come to work in a way that is... Um, you know, makes a difference to real people every day. It's really, yeah. it's really powerful. Because you know, um, Jim Collins in Built to Last and, and Good to Great, you know, says all the time the companies that have a clearly articulated purpose are the ones that and and constantly reinvent 
the way the purpose is mm. actually delivered mm. to mm. customers or into the market are the ones that continue to grow. In fact, I loved his example with Disney. He said um, Walt was the the heart and soul of that business mm. and, and was able to drive it forward. Mm. When he died, the reason Disney lost its way for about a decade was because Roy, rather than being the heart and soul, was trying to replicate Walt's legacy by saying, what would Walt do? Right. Now, the danger there is you just end up reproducing what happened in the past. You reproduce the behaviour, not the reason for the behaviour, not the purpose of the company. You know, you just say, well, he wouldn't do that, and he would, but time moves on. And it wasn't until Michael Eisner came back into the role and he re you know, he re-embraced the original purpose about magic and then just delivered, delivered that forward. And I think, you know, I've just had a, a few negative reactions from some people when we talk about purpose because they think it's just like brand positioning. But in actual fact, it goes much deeper into the company. But it's the role of marketing, don't you agree, that to bring the purpose out in a way that engages employees, customers, the category. I think marketing has a critical role to play. It's part catalyst, part, part storyteller. Mm -hmm. But where it's incredibly powerful is is when you can engage all parts of your organization and and help build and shape and, and guide that purpose but marketing should be the catalyst and and they should be the way of, of bringing that to life in a way that is is really quite you know if it's done well it's actually quite emotional mm. so no I agree um, but it's it's much more than brand position absolutely it's because a, it it's a compass. superficial it has to be a compass to design um, to um, define direction and big decisions. If you're not making big decisions on which businesses to be in and which not to be in based on your purpose, then that purpose is probably fairly superficial. Mm. Yeah, that's why I think it works at a corporate level. It may not work so well at a brand level. You know um, Unilever embraced brand purpose um, and then they've got Dove saying real beauty and Link saying sexual success. Yes at the same time, and it's the one company. How does Unilever sit comfortably with two purposes that are almost at cross-purposes with each other? It's difficult to do, Darren. We have the same issue with many brands and a corporate yeah. purpose. Um, it's hard to get right, but it's worth spending the time, and marketers you know, should be at the pointy end of it. Mm. So, you know, you mentioned it before, this is an exciting time for marketers. What do, you, what do you think should be the skills that marketers, you know, your peers, the, the people that are working under you, coming up in the new generation, as marketers, what are the things that they should be looking to do? Mm. You know, what are the, the skills and capabilities? What are the, the, the areas that they should be focusing on to really prepare them mm. for this opportunity that seems to be waiting for us? I work from the notion, Darren, that learning beats knowing. Mm -hmm. So the number one thing I would say, even outside of the areas that, you know, that I think are important, and I'm happy to touch on those, is that you cannot bring a mentality um, that I now know um, I have to learn and I have to be prepared to learn constantly because this is changing and changing really quickly and it will continue to for some time. Having said that, I think there's a balance of two or three things. You mentioned behavioural economics. I've got to say, I think that's right at the heart. Um, it's not new. No. But I think it's more important than ever. The way people make decisions is critical. Uh, the different cog cognitive bias that's made there. So to me, that's part social, social science yep. needs to be there. Uh, you've got to be comfortable with data. Fi and, and I don't mean just 
you know, data for data's sake, but finding meaning in data. Mm. There is meaning there. It takes time and effort to find it and knowing what questions to ask, no doubt in my mind. And then the third leg in my mind is, is how technology can simplify journeys, stuff for people and not being afraid of those three things. In fact, trying to bring them together in a way, um, I think, you know, you can write your own ticket. You get that right. It will not just allow you to be a great marketer. You can build businesses. You can run businesses because the people who are going to be running tomorrow's businesses are going to understand those three things because that's where the value is. Yeah, they've replaced the old, you know, human resources, balance sheet. You know, those things are still there. In fact, maybe not replaced. They're the three new ones. Well, I think the the others are still there, Darren, but they're not going to be differentiators of performance. Mm. Um, the differentiators of performance are going to be understanding behaviour and, and, and building experiences that just are so elegant um, that they actually either change that behaviour or, or um, acknowledge that behaviour. That's, that's powerful stuff. And underpinning all this, and, and you touched on it before, is the fact that we still need the ability to create strategy underneath it, mm-hmm. okay? Because all of these are activities in a way. They're disciplines. But uh, the other concern I have with the industry is how strategy has become almost debased because everyone does strategy. You know, have you found how many strategists are in the circle of uh, business that you're in? I'm sure you've got media strategists, social media strategists, data strategists, technology strategists. Everyone's a strategist, right? If I go back to your military metaphor before, though... There's a lot of strategy, right? So that's that's fair. Um, but what I what I find is strategy is kind of turned into doing everything, and and military strategy would say it's the in a way it's the art of choosing what not to do, what things to consider but not do. Perfect. And so, but that's at odds at times with you know let's test and learn and do a lot of things. But having said that, um, you know I think where we could do a better job is is um, not trying to back every horse every day. And that's um, you know, Sun Tzu, the earliest strategist, very popular in the 80s, uh, very early in the book, says, you know, strategy is what battles not to fight, what enemies not to engage, right. what emperors not to follow. You know, exactly. strategy is a reductive process. I, I find too often these days it's an additive process. Mm-hmm. And the biggest frustration for companies and marketers especially is that when you follow the advice of all these strategists who really become salespeople, yeah, you know, where are you going to ever meet a social media strategist who doesn't suggest that you use social media? Mm. Where are you going to find a media strategist who says you shouldn't use paid media? They're salespeople. They're not actually strategists. But I think it puts the onus back on the client, Darren. I mean, more and more, the onus has to be on the client um, to be um, go back again and again to the customer problem you want to solve. Be incredibly crystal clear on that and then re- be reductive in terms of how you're going to deliver that because you're dead right. I think it is additive to a degree. Um, we have, a, um, and my business is perhaps no different to anyone else, we, ha- we have a lot of partners, as you know, yeah. um, and we take, and they're very good partners hmm. and they have great advice and, you know, our skill ultimately has to be to take great advice but to pick a course of action and execute on it incredibly well. Um, rather than taking every piece of advice and executing every piece of advice because we really just 
you know, we can, we do a good job of nothing. Yeah, and and so you know, from my perspective, if this is where you talked about art and science before, and maths men and the madmen, you know, strategy will always be something that requires human beings, and I actually think great strategy is an art. Mm. And much of the technology and the science and the maths is about informing the the decisions we make in the art of strategy. You know, I know there's art in creativity and things like that, but the thing that we'll never be able to replace is the ability to absorb the human brain to absorb lots of information, lots of different suggestions, but then to be able to make decisions to, around building a reductive strategy that hu- achieves huge success. I'd be in violent agreement with that, Darren. I mean, my, my experience has been uh, the data is incredibly useful in defining the problem. Yeah. You know, go back to the Albert Einstein, I think it was, yeah. um, you know, 55-5, give me an hour to solve a problem and I'll spend 55 minutes on defining the problem. So I think the data is so good in making sure you're solving the right problem to start. It's also really handy to actually be reductive in some way because it can rule out some strategies. But I do think you need your own commercial acumen, your own, in a way, um, experience, intuition, i.e. perhaps mm. part art, to then go, I think this is the right strategy and I should execute it in these proportions mm. uh, at this speed. Um, yeah, I think I think there is an X factor there, and that's why it, it it's just not ubiquitous. If, if it was that easy, yeah, um, you would you would have algorithms develop yeah, your strategy and and you'd be able successful. to look it up. Yeah, it'd be like a prescription. Oh, I've got a pain here. Here's the therapy. I wish it was that it. easy. Yeah, and it's not. Um, the other thing I just wanted to pick up on was um, you mentioned before the test and learn. Right? And I think having come from a science background um, and worked in medical research, I, the thing I think testing and learning is the most valuable thing we can do because when the world's changing, um, there's no we can't take history and apply it because okay. it's no longer relevant. So we need to test and learn. The only mistake I see being made over and over again, and, and you've probably seen this as well, is people test too many things at once. Mm-hmm. So the results. Uh, meaningless. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm as guilty of that as anyone, I think, Darren. I think um, uh, we use, we, we try to use um, methodologies that help us avoid that. But look, from time to time, we, we do. We, we, we take um, and employ methodologies like Agile, which is a DevOps, which is an iterate fast. So you're testing, but you're not testing just for knowledge, you're testing so that you can inform the next iteration and get to that iteration fast. I like I like what um, I, I think you'd say Amazon really started with the MVP, minimum viable product. So um, what's different now is in the past, we would test a product, we'd test a proposition um, in a theoretical sense, mm. in groups. What we now do is build something as a prototype and put it in the market. Yeah. And... And sometimes that don't work. Sometimes it does. But we're able to iterate fairly quickly from that rather than just testing lots of propositions and really getting nothing ever to commercial end. So the best thing I heard last week at this conference was um, uh, fail fast is a mistake. Mm. Okay? What, because failure is if something doesn't work and you learn nothing from it. Mm. Right? But testing something and having a negative outcome 
as long as you learnt mm. what caused that so mm. that you could then reiterate, which is where Agile comes from. True. Even if something fails, I've learnt from it so I can move forward. Correct. But, yeah, I think too many people think of fail fast as being it's okay to fail. No, don't fail. Learn from your mistakes so that you get better at it. Well, I don't think any of us really want to be the sort of testing equals throw a lot of things at the wall and, and you know, some of them stick. I you, mean, you've still got to have a hypothesis. Go back to your science analogy, yeah. Darren. I think we, you know, you have to have a hypothesis mm. and you're testing a hypothesis. That's right. Which isn't just, you know, I'll put 10 things out there and I hope one works. So, And, and in, in a hypothesis, you are looking, you, you, you kind of have a view of what could fail and therefore how you would learn from that to inform your next hypothesis. So I think where we are working hard and, and we're not where we'd want to be yet, but we are getting better at creating the hypotheses that we want to test rather than just putting something out there. Mark, this has been a fabulous conversation. I wish it could go on for longer, but we've run out of time. It's always a pleasure and I love the way you think. So thank you for spending some time having a chat. My pleasure, Darren.